0: Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing, cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and hello to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be back with you for another episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm very much looking forward to today's discussion, Uh, Tony. We're going to be uh, talking about the upcoming federal election and what it means for the future of Australia and also uh, the ingredients of a successful election campaign. Um, And I can think of no better Australian to be discussing this important issue than you, Tony. Uh, Leader of the Opposition from 2009 to 2013, Prime Minister from 2013 to 2015. Uh, You led two enormously successful campaigns that many have remarked were among the most successful campaigns in modern Australian political history. Uh, The first in 2010 where uh, you fought Labor to a draw after Labor's stumping victory in 2007, where everybody or the vast majority of the commentariat believed that um, the coalition would be in opposition for many, many years, uh, and the second in 2013, where you led uh, successfully the coalition to a enormous victory uh, and took the coalition to government from opposition for just the fourth time uh, since World War Two, uh, Tony, to begin with, based on all of your experience and the success you've had, Uh, that i've just outlined Uh, can you share with us your insights as to what makes a successful campaign
1: well daniel i can and i'm very happy to be with you look um you you win elections by being able to tell voters how things will be different and better if the government changes so i was able to say to people in 2010 uh, that if they voted for the coalition there would be no carbon tax because you might remember that Labor back then was promising an emissions trading scheme. It then dropped the emissions trading scheme, changed the leader, but was still absolutely obsessed uh, with climate change. Um, You might remember Julia Gillard famously said in that election campaign, there will be no carbon tax under a government I lead. Well, I kept saying until I was blue in the face that as sure as night follows day... Uh, if Labor is re-elected, there will be a carbon tax and it will be a great big new tax and everything. Well, um, uh, that's what I said. Uh, We took a first-term majority government to minority status. It was the first time uh, in 70-odd years that this had happened. Um, And then in the 2013 election, I didn't just attack the Labor government for its manifest failings uh, on borders uh, on budgets, um, it's waste and extravagance. I said, look, vote for me and four things will be different. We'll stop the boats, we'll scrap the taxes, we'll fix the budget and we'll build the roads of the 21st century. And so it wasn't just a negative critique of the government, it was a positive assertion of what we were going to do to sort out the mess that the government had created. So, so the secret of effective opposition is not just being negative, it's crafting a positive out of the faults and flaws of the existing government. And the other important thing is you can't attack the government from all points of the ideological compass. You've got to attack the government from a consistent point of view because if you do attack the government one minute uh, for not spending enough, uh, the next minute for spending too much, for argument's sake. People say, but hang on a minute, Uh, what do these guys stand for? Uh, To succeed, oppositions need to put in the hard yards uh, for many, many months before the actual campaign begins and what they do in the campaign has got to be absolutely consistent Uh, and an obvious extension of all the things that they've been doing in the previous months and years.
0: Well, thank you for that, Tony. There's a lot to touch on there. I'd like to firstly just touch on twenty the 2010 success that you had the campaign because you mentioned an important fact and you sort of glossed over it. But it was the first time you said that a a government had gone from majority to minority within one term in 70 odd years. Now that's that's quite an accomplishment and quite an historical um, quite an historical event to have happened. Can you? give us an insight into your own, I guess, mentality and psychology when you were leader of the opposition at that time. And it's not just that the carbon tax and so-called climate action was basically accepted by the political class and the media. You, as a leader, were also consistently under fire by many, including on your own side, yet you had such a remarkable outcome In my opinion, it was because of your ability to communicate to the average Australian, to cut through the media, the elite media, and talk to people directly. To what would you attribute your success?
1: Well, I could remember the first press conference I did as opposition leader. I'd won the opposition leadership unexpectedly by just one vote when Joe Hockey dropped out in the first round. And Malcolm Turnbull and I squared off in the second round and having voted to get rid of Malcolm, they could hardly put him back. And in the end, they put me there with a not exactly resounding margin uh, of of one vote. So I guess it wasn't exactly an auspicious start, but I went into my first press conference and I said, look, the job of an opposition is not to make weak compromises with a bad government. The job of an opposition is to oppose... And to present a clear alternative uh, to the other side and i was able to uh, to live by that for the next four years and yes there were people in the media there was a superabundance of people in the media who kept saying oh uh, abbott's unelectable uh, there were a lot of people in my own party who thought that uh, i was unelectable or i was too conservative or too right-wing or uh, too hard line on climate etc. Um, but the public were persuaded that that the coalition that I led was in important respects that mattered to them going to do a substantially better job than the Labor Party and I believe we absolutely did. I mean uh, for two years um, despite everything we did scrap the carbon tax and the mining tax and It's not often that taxes get scrapped as opposed to merely being changed. Uh, We did stop the boats that everyone, including people like John Howard and Philip Ruddock, who'd stopped them before, thought would be impossible. Uh, We did it remarkably swiftly and remarkably smoothly under the circumstances. Uh, We did begin an extraordinary program of infrastructure building, particularly noticeable in New South Wales and in Sydney, where uh, that... Infrastructure wasn't subsequently sabotaged by an incoming Labor government as the East West Link was here in Melbourne. But uh, West Connects, North Connects, the Western Sydney Airport, all happening now. The Pacific Highway, duplicated now, uh, thanks to the Abbott government. And of course, budget repair. Well, um, the difficulty there was that the uh, Labor government had so-called Abbott-proofed the budget by baking into legislation a whole lot of spending uh, uh, programs that had previously been in the appropriations bills, and uh, this made the job of budget repair excruciatingly difficult. But we did make a good start, and uh, by dint of uh, very hard work, uh, led by uh, Matthias Cormann, the former finance minister, uh, the government was almost back to surplus at the start of the pandemic. Uh, sadly, uh, that's the closest that we're going to get to a surplus for a very, very, very long time indeed, so it seems.
0: It is, and of course, the 2014 budget, we look back on that now, which was your government's first budget, really is the last genuine attempt to engage in serious structural reform to the underlying deficit and debt challenges that our nation faces. Um, the, the question I wanted to ask you, Tony, and what you've just shared with us is why why were you right and they were wrong in the sense of how did the media get you wrong and how did the media get the Australian public so wrong in 2010 and, and 2013? Do you attribute that primarily to, to political bias or is it that they just don't really get what the average person is thinking? Uh,
1: look, Scott Morrison often refers to the Canberra bubble and – the bubble doesn't just exist in Canberra. I think the bubble tends to uh, to exist in Canberra, and it and it it also exists in the inner cities uh, of most of our metropolises. And I, th- I think there is a different way of thinking between people who work in offices uh, and people who work in factories and shops and warehouses, between people who have secure, well-paid jobs as lawyers and accountants and as senior public servants and people who work casually and uh, live much more from hand to mouth, from day to day, from month to month. And, and uh, if, if you are in a secure, comfortable job, um, if you are the sort of person who feels that he or she could really feel just as comfortable in London or New York or... Hong Kong or Paris, uh, as in Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide or Brisbane or Perth, uh, you do tend to have a different set of attitudes um, to the people who are very much rooted in local communities and who are determined to ensure that their local community succeed because they know that their local community is only the closure of one factory or the closure of one mine uh, or the failure of one proposed major development, uh, it's only that far away uh, from serious deprivation and difficulty. So, so I, I think we are a more polarised society than we were, uh, not just politically, but I think socially we're a more polarised society than we were. Now, I don't want to exaggerate this. I think that Australia is more cohesive, less fragmented, less polarised than many other places, including other countries that we look to for guidance and inspiration like the United States and Britain. But nevertheless, I do think we are more polarised than we were. I think that the gulf between um, people living in different parts of cities doing different kinds of things is greater than it was. And we suffer from this problem that now seems to be endemic. Um, instead of accepting that people of goodwill uh, can genuinely disagree, uh, we tend to think that someone who we disagree with is not just misguided but bad, uh, not just wrong-headed but wrong-hearted. And, and this, is a, this is a real problem because uh, in the end, uh, as uh, I think Menzies originally said back in 1939 and 1940, and as John Howard was accustomed to repeat, uh, for society su- to succeed, the things that unite us have got to be at least as strong as anything that divides us. And that is less true today uh, than it was for a long time. Mm.
0: To what do you attribute that growing polarisation? And just to set up the context, I think you've touched on something very important so you'd know... Uh, the British author, David Goodhart, has discussed this in, in one of his recent books about the the difference between the anywheres and the somewheres, uh, with the anywheres being this sort of cosmopolitan elite that you refer to and the somewheres being those who are, are more rooted in their local communities with you know media and the apparatchiks of, and, and those at the commanding heights of our economy and culture most likely to be the anywheres and, and the mainstream Australians most likely to be the somewheres. Uh, Then there's also this, I think, growing division that we saw in the pandemic where those who were in secure, well-paid jobs were on balance, more likely to favour lockdowns, whereas those who were working with their hands, uh, perhaps in less secure employment in small businesses and working for themselves, uh, who incurred the cost more directly, uh, were more likely to be hesitant about um, lockdown. So I think those are a couple of examples of of the growing polarization we're seeing. Um, but to go to my question, to what would you primarily attribute this this growing polarization that you've identified?
1: Yeah, look uh, it, it's a very it's a very good question and and there's no neat answer to it, Dan. Uh, many people think that the rise of social media has been uh, uh, a factor here. Uh, because uh, social media tends to spread heat, not light. Uh, It tends to fuel outrage, not insight. And it's incredibly destructive, uh, incredibly destructive. On those very few occasions when I've actually uh, got into the uh, argy-bargy as opposed to simply posting stuff on social media myself the vitriol is extraordinary and if you're in any way psychologically fragile it could really get under your skin Uh, people whose sense of self has been undermined by all sorts of modern thinking whether it be the imminence of alleged environmental doom uh, whether it's the um, uncertainty of what gender we might really be uh, whether it be this doubt about the legitimacy of our culture and our country uh, there are so many things that are forced onto people, particularly young people, which would be very subversive of their inner peace and ultimate sense of self. So so I think that's that's an issue. Uh,
0: would you add sort of identity politics and this sort of growing tendency to, to divide us by you know, pl- pl- our superficial differences? Yeah, and-
1: and- pl- plainly, plainly. I mean, this idea that if you're... Of a particular race or a particular sexuality, well, that defines you in a way that nothing else can. If you're black, for instance, there's some kind of an inherent problem uh, vis-à-vis white people, or if you're gay, there's an inherent problem vis-à-vis uh, straight people, and so on. I mean, I think I think these are all 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 further difficulties. Once upon a time. Um, Christianity provided much more social glue uh, than it does today. Um, I mean, as someone who has always taken my very (laughs) imperfect and inadequate Catholicism seriously, uh, I am conscious of the fact that uh, Christian faith uh, doesn't make you good, but it certainly makes you better uh, than you would normally be. Uh, It it acts as a brake on... Uh, the worst angels of your nature um, it, uh, it it encourages you uh, to strive to be better uh, to strive to think of others uh, to be conscious of your own faults and failings rather than always looking for the faults and failings of others and yet not only uh, is Christian faith uh, less and less held and believed in but even our Christian knowledge is, uh, is evaporating uh, like uh, like rainwater in a drought. I mean, it's extraordinary how how detached from that rich cultural heritage, uh, if nothing else, we are today. So, look, I think all of these factors feed in. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are no easy answers. Uh, the important thing, I believe, is for people uh, to speak what they believe to be true and reasonable uh, as persuasively uh and as politely, but nevertheless as firmly uh, as they can, uh, and to stand up for what they believe are uh, the uh, enduring values, uh, the perennial truths, and the great historical strengths of countries like ours.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, Tony. I want to just return to uh, the current campaign and picking up on your uh, observations and analysis of of. Labor and Anthony Albanese as, as opposition leader. And I want to discuss the, I guess, relationship between election campaigns and policy. There's sometimes a criticism that's made of modern campaigning in Australia that it's become too much like the United States where it's focused on personalities rather than uh, focused on, I guess, firstly, the the parties and secondly, the policies. Um, I can understand where that criticism comes from, but at the same time, Generally speaking, I think those who have the most successful campaigns are typically those who have the best policies um, for the average person. Um, can you discuss what is the relationship between a, an election campaign and the policies that are being put forward for the next term of government?
1: well let's let's look uh, let's compare and contrast uh, two campaigns by the same person, and uh, so that I don't get dragged too much into contemporary, Controversy here in Australia. Let's look at the 2016 and the 2020 Trump campaigns in America. Uh, The 2016 Trump campaign was a campaign by an angry outsider, to be sure, Uh, but nevertheless, it was a campaign promising to do things which resonated with uh, vast swathes of middle America. If, If you boil it down, what was Trump? promising to do in 2016. He was promising to build the wall and drain the swamp. In other words, he was going to stop the influx of illegal uh, immigrants, uh, which a lot of Americans felt were depressing their wage rates and um, their standard of living, making it harder for them uh, to get housing, making it harder for them to move around their cities and so on. And he was going to drain the swamp, that is, try to ensure that the Washington establishment was responsive to them rather than a self-perpetuating elite that was looking after itself. And look, uh, whatever you think of the Trump administration, uh, he did, uh, at least until the pandemic hit, in his own at times uh, shambolic and chaotic way, uh, implement his promises. I mean, he did boost defence. He did try to build the wall. He did recognise Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. He did pull out. Uh, of the the Paris Agreement. Uh, He did remove massive amounts of red and green tape, uh, which produced record rates of employment. It produced for the first time in a generation rising wage rates and so on. Then, of course, the pandemic hit, and uh, this was an enemy that you couldn't overcome by invective uh, and ridicule. You actually had to do your best to overcome it with with common sense and with a degree of science, uh, which was not easy for someone who operated uh, in accordance with with the Trump paradigm. But the 2020 campaign was essentially all about Trump. Uh, He made it all about him. And you are always going to lose a campaign which is all about you, because... In a democratic election, it's got to be all about the voters. Mm. And and the difficulty with Anthony Albanese's campaign is that apart from changing the Prime Minister, it's not exactly clear what he wants to do that's different. Yes, he wants to have a few more after-hours bulk-billing Medicare clinics. Uh, yes, he wants a bit more money spent on childcare Yes, he wants aged care facilities to run better. Well, actually, don't we all want that? Uh, other than that, he's saying, well, vote for me because I'm, I'm not Scott Morrison. But we know, in the end, the election is not just about who sits in the lodge. The election is about what sort of a country do we want to be. And the suspicion of anyone running a small target strategy is that they've got a hidden agenda. I think it's pretty clear that if there is an Albanese government, uh, it will be a government that spends a lot more, uh, inevitably therefore taxes a lot more, Um, political correctness will be even more rampant uh, and the emissions obsession uh, will be even more entrenched and that's bad news for the vast majority of middle Australia. It means business conditions will be tougher, jobs will be scarcer, uh, cost of living uh, will be will be harder and given that uh, the international situation is more ominous than it's been in many many decades given that uh, the economic uh, situation uh, is quite fragile in a way that it hasn't been at least since the GFC and I would argue for many decades uh, uh, back from that I um, it's not a very happy prospect.
0: Based on your experience in in leading the opposition and government and, as I mentioned at the start, the successful campaigns that you led in 2010 and 2013, why do you think Labor and Albanese have gone down this road? Because I, I agree with you that basically so far in the campaign, and we're only you know a bit over a week in, so there's a long way to go, it has been pretty much focused on Scott Morrison. They've tried to criticize Scott Morrison f- from a variety of different angles, saying that he has a difficult relationship with the truth and so forth, but has failed to articulate a coherent vision for Australia's future. It's hard, and I think many of our listeners find it hard to understand, well, what have you been doing for three years if not coming up with an alternative vision? Why is it just... Do you think it's driven by focus group, polling, Twitter, social media? How do they get themselves into this situation, do you think?
1: Well, I I, I mean, we conservatives are a little wary of visions, grand visions. Uh, uh, When I was the opposition leader, I, I didn't so much talk about my vision of Australia. I talked about the problems that we've got that I am going to address. And I always had specific things that I was going to do comprehensible things that I was going to do uh, to address them. In the end, uh, uh, the best governmental vision for Australia is to facilitate a situation where all of us can more easily realise our visions for ourselves, whether it's to start that small business that we've always wanted to start and have it flourish, whether it's to um, get into university and do that medicine degree that we always wanted to do. Uh, whether it's to start a family and be able to live in uh, your dream location etc I mean these are the things that the government should be facilitating the ability of people to live out better lives in accordance with their own lights and their own preferences but um, the interesting thing about 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 uh, the way our polity has evolved over the last over the last decade couple of years is that is that under the influence of the pandemic um, the party of small government has perforce been a party of bigger government and the party of uh, less spending has perforce become the party of more spending and that's given the labour party uh if you like uh less ground, less of their normal ground to occupy. So there's less criticism of the Morrison government's policy and therefore almost inevitably more criticism of the Morrison government's uh, personalities. At the same time, uh, you've got this growth of minor parties on the right saying, well, actually, uh, we don't like the way that our freedoms have been limited... Uh, uh, over the last couple of years. We don't like the way that spending has exploded over the last couple of years. Uh, mm. uh, we don't like the way that uh, safety first or safety only has become uh, the mindset of, of government over the last uh, um, couple of years. So, so it's, unsettled, uh, it's unsettled the political waters and uh, I think that's caused difficulties for everyone uh, in the whole, across the whole political spectrum, uh, the other point is, politicians like generals tend to refight the last war. Mm. Um, Bill Shorten's problem was that he wanted a mandate for specific change, and he thought his opponent was going to be Malcolm Turnbull, and therefore he, uh, quite early on, came out with. With big policy changes on tax essentially that was going to provide the extra revenue that he wanted to spend on health and education and so on Um, and then of course the coalition changed the Prime Minister Um, Scott Morrison um, was a was a much better more savvy campaigner uh, than his predecessor and Policies that I think Shorten may have been able to get away with against Turnbull, uh, he wasn't able to get away with against Scott Morrison. Uh, The lesson that the Labor Party drew from that was uh, be a small target. Well, um, small target strategies might work if it's John Howard in 1996, who had a very well-developed political personality even then. Um, it's not at all clear that the small target strategy is working for Anthony Albanese now, particularly given that, in a sense, he's become the target by virtue of his plenitude of errors on the campaign trail.
0: Mm. No, that's a fascinating insight and I think the main one for me there was about the what I would sort of describe as the the, um, the contours of, of political debate sort of narrowing a little bit as as the coalition, um, you know, due to the pandemic, has greatly expanded its its uh, spending and uh, debt situation, and I would add also net zero as an example where the debate about climate policy is is much different to what it was in the past. Um, and as you identify the rising vote that seems to be going to minor parties. And I just want to close our discussion on that on that particular topic and we can pick it up maybe in a future discussion because I think it's a big issue. But I remember John Howard once said that it used to basically be the case that you had 40-40-20 in terms of first preference votes, 40 to the coalition, percent, 40% to coalition, 40% to Labor, 20% to other. Now it's more like getting towards a third, a third, a third. It might not quite be there yet, but that's where we're heading. Um, what do you? I mean, firstly, do you share that broad view? And if you do, um, what do you think that means for the future of our of our culture and of the ability of the political system to translate the concerns and aspirations of the average person into tangible policy outcomes?
1: Well, the Howard um, analysis is correct. Uh, it's a much less tribal situation, uh, and that reflects partly uh, the decline of political belief um, on both sides, both broad sides, and I suppose uh, it's a reflection of a more diverse society in the same way that once upon a time we bought Fords or Holdens, uh, we voted Labor or Liberal. Now there's 100 different varieties of car on our roads and, yes, there's a lot of different variety in the political offerings as well. So what do we do? Well, again, to form a government, you've essentially got to create a coalition that goes beyond your core support base. And Howard uh, created a governing coalition by attracting the Howard battlers, if you like, Uh, in the same way Reagan had the Reagan Democrats and Thatcher had the blue-collar Tories and maybe I had the Tony Tradies, you know. Um, So so that's what every successful government is going to do. I mean, Bob Hawke uh, won over a lot of business types uh, by virtue of his uh, moderation in his latter days as a trade union leader and his commitment to important reforms that the Fraser government had largely neglected Uh, in the early years of, of his prime ministership. So so all successful governments attract uh, votes from beyond their standard core support base, and by their policies they manage to keep them uh, for more than one election. And 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 that's the challenge uh, that both parties have got at the moment. Um, The problem is uh, uh, it's harder and harder to know what uh, parties believe often enough um, because uh, there's such a smorgasbord of policies that they offer. Uh, The whole political spectrum arguably is moving to the left um, because of cultural shifts and uh, so it's just a much more difficult environment for for people to navigate but uh, look if it were me uh, there'd be just a couple of things that uh, I would be promising to do differently in this campaign. Uh, Good on Scott Morrison for committing to a couple of specific dam projects in Queensland Uh, but I've got to say if it were me um, I'd be uh, committing as the first act of a incoming coalition government uh, to remove the legislative ban on nuclear power, because if we are going to achieve net zero by 2050, uh, and if we're going to have affordable, reliable power, uh, nuclear is the only proven uh, emissions-free form of baseload power, so it's got to be at least potentially in the mix. The other thing I'd be doing is, uh, and I know there are all sorts of difficulties with this, given the role of the states in our education systems, but, uh, but I'd, be, I'd be scrapping the national curriculum and I'd be abolishing the so-called uh, cross-curriculum uh, priorities uh, that mean every subject has got to be taught from an Indigenous and Asian and a sustainability perspective because this is really uh, a, a, a charter of political correctness contaminating our schools and brainwashing our kids... Uh, If you've got to teach everything from this perspective, uh, essentially all education is going to be slanted towards the view uh, that our country is illegitimate, that our culture is inadequate and that our our environment is being destroyed and that's not the message we should be giving young Australians.
0: No absolutely Tony and on that note uh, we'll end today's discussion. It's been a fascinating insight into campaigns and the nature of politics and and the changing nature of our society and culture so thank you very much for your generous uh, contribution and insights it's greatly appreciated and I'm very much looking forward to our ongoing discussions uh, up until the campaign and beyond. Me too
1: Dan thank you.
0: This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.